What is up, everybody? This is the Mind Over Macros podcast, and I am your host, Mike Milner. And wow, we just had an amazing conversation, Dr. Gabrielle Fundaro and myself, and she dropped some serious knowledge about all things gut health. I think you guys are going to have to run through this episode a couple times or take out a pen and paper and write down some notes, unless you're driving, and that would be bad. But really enjoyed this episode, and if you can do us a favor and please help the show grow, we're doing so great right now, so let's keep it rolling. Give me a five-star rating and review on iTunes, please, and if you could do us a favor, take a screenshot and share on Instagram, myself, at coach underscore Mike underscore Milner, and Dr. Fundaro at Vitamin PhD. We love to see who's listening and what you guys think, and enjoy the episode. All right, guys, I am joined by Dr. Gabrielle Fandaro. Hopefully I said that right. Gut health expert, and I'm super excited for this conversation because I consider myself as the person who talks about poop more than anybody else. And as a gut health expert, you might have me beat. Maybe, maybe. Um, I think I, I don't talk as on the internet as much about poop as I do with, uh, you know, people sending me messages and things on Instagram personally. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. My clients give me shit like, you know, pun intended, but, um, you know, they'll tell me about their digestion or like they, you know, are regular, had a solid poop and I'm celebrating as if they just hit a deadlift PR. Um, but anyway, (laughs) so I appreciate you joining me and I'm super excited for this conversation. Um, why don't you start off by telling me, um, what got you into the fitness industry to begin with? And then what led you down the path of gut health? Oh, wow. Well, what got me into the industry? Um, that's like way back in the day. I actually started college as a music major and sort of, uh, it was kind of my misguided attempt to lose weight. I started, you know, like a lot of people do, uh, I'm going to not eat carbs and, you know, do cardio for hours a day. Um, and got into kind of rock climbing and, you know, decided I want to get a little bit stronger for that. And I started lifting and, um, I quickly realized that really I had more passion for learning about fitness and biology than I did for my music classes. Um, so I switched my major to exercise science. And um, about my junior year, I was in anatomy and physiology and tutoring for free for many hours a week. And I thought, you know, I really like this whole teaching and tutoring gig. And if I can get paid for this, I probably should. And so that's when I decided that I wanted to pursue a PhD. Uh, so, um, you know, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. And so I can say that I I got lucky in that I did my internship and then a subsequent, um, uh, research, uh, assistant, uh, job for six months at the lab where I would eventually do my PhD. Um, and it was actually in skeletal muscle physiology and biochemistry. That was the focus of the lab. But one of the treatments that we would use to induce, uh, systemic inflammation in mouse models, uh, was to inject them with LPS or lipopolysaccharide. it's a constituent of the cell wall of specific types of, uh, bacteria. And when this LPS, uh, is released from those bacteria as they die and, and their bodies break down or they lies, that can actually enter systemic circulation and bind to specific receptors in the immune system and cause inflammation that's been implicated in things like type 2 diabetes. 
And so I was very curious about why we were using LPS, what was its physiological relevance, um, and it was because it's something that can come from the gut and has also been associated with uh, high-fat diets and obesity. And I thought, well, it's really important that we're figuring out what's happening at the level of skeletal muscle, but I am the type of person who wants to know everything about everything, and so I really wanted to know also how was it getting out of the gut into circulation and how could we prevent that in the first place? So an opportunity came up uh, to do some research with probiotics and that was my, my side project. But because my main project was kind of uh, bungled, we lost uh, all of the most valuable samples that we really needed. I took on the side project as the main project and, and really expanded that um, in scope and from there, um, I really didn't do too much with gut health. Actually, I went on to teach in exercise science, primarily in anatomy and physiology and sport nutrition. But when I came on with RP, um, you know, we really had a great opportunity for me to kind of get back into the, the roots of, of my dissertation and um, talk more about gut health because it's such a, an important topic and one uh, with, a, with a lot of confusion and sort of conflation of data and a lot of gurus and hype around it. And so I'm um, trying to be, you know, sort of a, a voice of reason and, um, and sort of explain the tech technical background of the science so that people can make informed decisions. Yeah, and I love that story. And it's funny because our expertise sometimes just finds us. And um, <laughs> when I hear people's story, that's it's kind of always happens that way. Like we go down one path and then something just kind of pops up and it grabs our attention. And then, you know, being eager learners, we jump in and, and that's kind of, you know, similar to what you experienced. And the reason that I wanted to bring you on is exactly what you just concluded with is bringing a practical approach to a complex topic which, you know, we know that gut health matters. We know that, you know, it's so important for our immune function and there's all these connections with mood disorders and gut health being associated with, you know, anxiety and depression and disease and just all these other things. But there's also so much that we don't know. Mm -hmm. And the fitness industry is really good at taking stuff that we don't know and trying to make outlandish claims about it and sell people on a product or basically telling everyone that, they're broken and they need to be fixed because their gut health is off. So yeah, let's kind of clear the air first. Um, I'd love for you to just kind of give a brief explanation, if if it's possible, to give a brief ex explanation on the gut microbiome and what it is and why it matters. Yeah, absolutely. So when we say uh, gut microbiome, we're actually talking about the genome or the genetic material of all the microorganisms that are in the gut. And microbiota actually refers to those organisms. So the microbiota are comprised mainly of bacteria. It's about 99% bacteria. Uh, but we also have archaea, uh, and they are sort of like bacteria, but in terms of uh, phylogeny, genetic background, they are different enough that they're, uh, they're different. Um, and even though there's only about 1% of the population is made from archaea, they have a really important functional role. Uh, we also have viruses, both viruses that can infect humans and viruses that can infect bacteria. Uh, and we also have protists, we have uh, yeasts, um, and all of these work together in a very complex ecosystem, and we actually need all of them. We even need the pathogenic bacteria uh, at appropriate levels. So that's sort of the rundown of, of who all is there. 
Now, in terms of when we're talking about uh, the the gut in in terms of anatomy and kind of where they're located, uh, we have some bacteria that live in the stomach, but there's very, very few because it's extremely acidic. Uh, We have some that live in the small intestine that's closest to the stomach. But again, because it's very acidic, uh, it's, it's pretty hostile to most bacteria. So the vast majority of all our bacteria, about 98% of the population, live in our colon, in our large intestine. And it's where the, that's the primary uh, site of uh, fiber fermentation. And so that's really when we test uh, bacterial colonies in the feces, we can extrapolate how that colony might look in the large intestine, because that's kind of the closest uh, analogy that we have. We, we, can't really easily in humans sample from the large intestine very easily. But the whole human microbiome is not just the gut. We also have skin biome. Females have a vaginal biome. And we also have an oral biome. Uh, they're all significantly different, but there is some, some sign that they you know, interact with each other as well. Yeah, I think what's so fascinating about that is as humans, we're like 99% bacteria when it comes to like 99% bacteria DNA and like 1% human DNA. I always have this vision of like almost like a scene from Men in Black where these little just, you know, creatures that are controlling our our decisions and our mood and all this other stuff that's going on. Um, One of the analogies that I like to use, um, and you can tell me if this is accurate or not, that it's basically like when we talk about the gut that we can kind of look at it like a tunnel going through a body of water and, you know, the cars are kind of the bacteria or, or the, I'm sorry, the cars are kind of like the food that's being processed and the bacteria are kind of like the command center of the tunnel and controlling traffic. And they, I mean, the analogy kind of falls apart because whatever gets digested and then enters into the body would be the equivalent of like a car going into the river, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But just to <laughs> kind of paint the picture that the tunnel is not technically a part of the water as if like the you know the gut bacteria they're not they're kind of a part of us not really um does that make sense as an analogy yeah i usually i would describe my students um i would explain it to my students like you could think of humans like a meat donut so (laughs) we have a hole down the center and the foodstuffs that go through our digestive tract are actually external to the body and the cells that line our digestive tracts are uh they're, they're, they, they play a role in our immune function. So just like our skin uh, helps to serve as a barrier against external pathogens, so do the cells of our digestive tract. Now, the cells of the digestive tract uh, have an underlying uh, uh, level of uh, really immune tissue and immune cells. And so those immune cells interact with the bacteria and the bacteria likewise interact with the immune cells. So you're absolutely right that we can control a flow of traffic across those uh, intestinal cells and hopefully, you know, keep out the really nasty pathogens and only absorb things that are nutritious to us. And the microbiome, those bacterial uh, cells, they are also actually metabolizing the foodstuffs as well. So it really is um, an intricate system. And you could sort of think, I've talked about it like being a poopy moat. So it's like a line of defense um, against the external pathogens. Yeah, I'm going to go with poopy moat from now on. Yes. <laughs> I like that description better. <laughs> Uh, So I think one of the things that gets confusing is when we talk about good bacteria versus bad bacteria. And, Mm -hmm. you know, 
I think that what's interesting is that sometimes a just the presence of a bad bacteria can be kind of blown out of proportion. Like someone can get a test done and, and see that they have you know, a certain bacteria strain that's considered bad, but within the context of a, you know, diverse ecosystem or, you know, in the presence of other good bacteria, it might not be a bad thing. It might actually be a good thing. And I think um, that's mm-hmm. where we start to see some confusion. Um, so can you just kind of describe what a healthy gut microbiome looks like or how we can start to simplify that? Oh, you know what? I can't because there is no profile of a healthy gut microbiome, in fact. Um, it's so funny that we talk about, you know, a healthy, healthy gut and, and gut health. And I almost want to stop using the term because it's become sort of nonsensical. Um, so what we consider to be quote unquote healthy or normal is based on samples from people who are, uh, free of a disease state. But the thing is, a a healthy normal looks different based on whether you are living uh, in the United States or in Europe. Uh, So it's based on on your gender. It can look different based on age. Uh, It can look different based on habitual diet. So we have to realize that, um, you know, just like a, a person's, you know, idea of, of health or success and whatnot, it's independent, it, it's, it's uh, individual. And so it's the same thing with a gut. So we don't have a definitive profile of a healthy gut. We have bacteria, uh, specific taxa of bacteria that we know confer a benefit to a host. They may help with uh, fiber fermentation to short-chain fatty acids. They may help with pathogen resistance. Uh, They may sequester simple sugars to actually reduce the energy availability um, of of the diet to the host. So there are taxa that we can say, yeah, these bacteria look like they're pretty helpful. But the problem with taking that out of context is just like you said, that we don't, you know, we don't look at an ecosystem, just one animal at a time and say like, oh, you know, if this animal only serves this function and it doesn't affect anyone else, this is a, this is a good animal or a bad animal. We don't say that. We just know that specific animals have specific functions and and they fit a niche in that ecosystem. And it's the same way with the human microbiome. We actually do need these pathogenic bacteria. And what we've actually found is that our uh, we have co-evolved with these bacteria. And so they help to educate and mature our immune system. So just like we have bacteria that can confer an obvious benefit to us, in some cases, yes, they may induce some level of inflammation. But if that inflammation is helping to kill off bacteria that would only really have a primarily pathogenic role or control their numbers, that's a good thing. So we really want to look at this as, as literally it is an ecosystem and everyone is playing an important role. And it's about relative abundances of these bacteria. So yeah, you could have H. pylori will exist, uh, especially in the stomach. It's actually a normal inhabitant of the gut microbiome. Now, if its growth is left uh, unregulated and it over-colonizes in the stomach, that's been implicated um, in ulcerations and stomach cancer. That's a bad thing for sure. But it could be that H. pylori is causing some, is, is a benefit 
benefit to other bacteria that may be of benefit to us or that its presence has in some way helped to mature our immune system. Or it may just be pretty benign and it's not doing anything of great harm or benefit to us. So I think moving away from this dichotomous thinking of good bacteria versus bad bacteria will help give us a better understanding of functionally what's going on in the gut. Because I think that's really what matters most. Um, even if we have some taxa that that die off, say we have some perturbation in the gut, we've taken antibiotics or something, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that we lose function in the gut because there's so much redundancy in what these bacteria can do. Like you said, we're like 1%, you know, human genetic material, 99% bacterial genetic material. So they are capable of many different metabolic functions and there's so much redundancy that you know we really have to look at it more from a functional standpoint and realize that it's not good or bad just like we don't have you know a moral stance on food that they can confer benefits that we just may not realize yet yeah absolutely and just looking at it taking a step back and looking at the big picture um now how much can we actually control because you mentioned um you know diet and Mm -hmm. just the impact that that would have on the gut ecosystem. So um, obviously there's the genetic component. So you mentioned age, gender, um, which we can't control, but, um, you know, from a diet, exercise, lifestyle standpoint, how much control do we actually have about, you know, what's going on there? Um, in, we don't know that fully, but in longitudinal, well, I can't make words today, in longitudinal studies in humans, um, it looks like about 60% of the microbiome stays the way it is, no matter what. Um, so that's, you know, changes in diet and exercise habits and weight loss and weight gain, um, even, you know, going on antibiotics and things like that, that some taxa will be affected, but it looks like there's just, there's sort of a, um, a core microbiome. And I, I use that term loosely because, you know, we haven't really identified that yet. Um, but about 60% is probably not going to be affected by anything. In studies that have used regression analyses to look at the effects of exercise, um, which have just been a couple, it looks like perhaps about 20% of our microbial diversity can be explained by our fitness level. Um, And then when it comes to diet, it looks like perhaps another 20% could be influenced by diet. Uh, So the majority of your of, of what we can identify. Now, that's the other caveat is that it also depends on how we're sampling and whether we're using um, culture, because if we're culturing samples, a lot of the species are actually not going to survive. So there are a lot of biases in, in our ability to determine these numbers. Um, but it looks like the majority are, are pretty stable and they stay stable from about age three until about age 60 or so. Okay, interesting. And from a dietary standpoint, how... You know, I, I feel like people kind of get carried away with the, you know, having to eat so many fermented foods and, you know, right. take a probiotic and a fiber supplement and doing all these things, just, you know, hashtag gut health. And it's really yeah. without, you know, really knowing what they're doing. Um, you know, is there any kind of recommendation on, you know, just let's be smart about our food choices. Let's not eat, you know, fast food for every meal. Is it, is there like some general kind of recommendation about how much of an impact that makes. And, you know, I know you mentioned kind of like 20%, but um, just as far as I don't, you know, want to kind of send somebody to the extreme of thinking only clean foods, I think that, you know, just providing some context would be helpful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
a lot of the studies thus far, if we're looking at um, dietary interventions, like really well-controlled dietary interventions where we can approach kind of causality um, of a diet, it, they're, they're pretty interesting. A lot of these are done in mice using um, fecal transplants. So they take a mouse that has um, eaten a specific diet and they take its feces uh, and and give that to a mouse that's germ-free. So that means that mouse doesn't have any bacteria. So now that germ-free mouse will basically be um, inoculated and colonized by the gut bacteria from the mouse that was eating that specific diet. Now, this is played out in a couple different ways. Uh, if we take mice that are, uh, or we, and you know what else we can do? We, we can actually take the feces from humans and transplant it into mice as well. So if we take... Um, the feces from a, a human. This was an example of an experiment that was done in Malawian children who had kwashiorkor, which is a, a protein energy malnutrition disease. We gave the feces of those children to uh, mice, and the mice then failed to thrive similarly to the children, uh, even when they were you know, put on a, a more nutritious diet. Uh, likewise, mice that have a genetic uh, mutation to, for leptin deficiency, so they overeat and become obese. If we give that mouse species to a germ-free mice, that germ-free mouse will then eat more or extract more energy from the diet. We can also do this with people who have uh, type 2 diabetes or uh, diet-induced obesity, um, and we see that mice will actually display a similar phenotype or external appearance to the pe people or the mouse that it's received a transplant from. So certainly the microbiome is influenced by the diet, and then when we transplant that into mice, those mice then have uh, an external appearance or behavior influenced by the gut microbiome. Now, what's harder to come up with, you know, actual uh, causal relationships in humans with randomized control trial uh, interventions on the microbiome, um, especially because we are using, like I said, fecal samples in most cases, whereas with mice, you know, we can see kind of what's going on more specifically actually in the gut. So a lot of these are extrapolations. But what we generally find with people, there are a few trends that, that reemerge pretty regularly. One would be that a high-fat diet, so even a ketogenic-style diet where we're talking about really high-fat, um, very minimal carbohydrates uh, with or without caloric restriction in both mice and humans, this seems to decrease microbial diversity. Uh, one big reason for that is if we have a lack of fiber, we are removing a food source or an energy source for a lot of the bacteria that we consider to be beneficial. So the other thing that we can look at are the fat types that we're choosing, you know, omega-3s versus omega-6s versus saturated fats. Now, in humans, it's really interesting. We actually find that if we include our genetic predisposition, like our, our age and our gender and things like that, those have such a big impact on the diversity and the profile of our microbiome that it doesn't even look like the, the type of fat that you eat really makes a difference. In rodents, there have been some studies that, you know, we've actually been able to stage interventions and look at the differences in um, lard-based diets versus fish oil-based diets. And it looks like the mice that were eating fish oil-based diets had less white adipose tissue inflammation and were more resistant to diet-induced obesity. But humans don't eat 
a diet of 100% lard or of, you know, 100% fish oil. So that's the other limitation is that when we're looking at uh, dietary studies in mice, a lot of the times our our diet-induced obesity research diets are like 40% to 60% fat um, and very high in saturated fat and high in refined carbohydrates. Now, those really reliably induce uh, obesity, overeating, and metabolic syndrome in mice. Um, so we probably, you know, a prudent recommendation would be don't eat a diet that is really high in both refined carbohydrates and fats. A lot of people aren't doing that now, and they're actually going, you know, to the other end of the spectrum and only eating meat. Uh, that's really problematic for the same reason that a poorly planned ketogenic diet could be problematic, because now you don't have enough fiber. Um, and fiber plays a really huge, important role in the production of short-chain fatty acids that help to maintain the integrity of our intestinal barrier so we can help to um, increase intestinal, uh, excuse me, uh, prevent intestinal permeability. They also help with appetite regulation, um, uh, insulin sensitivity, um, adipogenesis or the, the development uh, and maintenance of the circulatory system for our digestive tract. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. So short-chain fatty acids are extremely important. And if we don't have that fiber, well, those bacteria are going to need to eat something else. Uh, they're going to have another carbon source. And in many cases, that comes from the mucus layer covering our intestines, which is really important. Uh, another, another step in, in our immune function, we want a nice thick mucus layer that helps to trap and, and keep pathogens out. And if that starts to get broken down, we see translocation of, of pathogenic bacteria bacteria and toxins more easily. So I would say those are my big, you know, those are my big takeaways is that you want to have a diet that's high in fiber um, from fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. I generally recommend eating less than 40% calories from fat, which also is right along with the American Heart Association and, um, and similar recommendations. Um, and, and, you know, eat a diverse diet. Other than that, we really can't say much conclusively uh, in terms of, you know, what protein sources we want to eat or what fat types we want to eat. Although there is some evidence that choosing plant-based proteins can be beneficial because they often come with fiber, um, you know, but that's a separate thing from saying, you know, do the amino acid sources actually matter? Um so this is, and there's, I could go on, I've already gone on for too long, but um, just to show that it's really a, a complex and nuanced area and, and studies are so um, heterogeneous that it's hard to say, you know, anything conclusively aside from these few trends that we've seen over and over again. No, I absolutely love that uh, because no matter how complicated a, a topic may be, it always comes back to the basics. And I feel like that, yeah. you know, no matter, I think it's just in our nature to want some sort of like you know, magical answer or secret solution. And, and there's so much that we don't know about, you know, the gut microbiome and, and gut health in general, that it becomes an easy target for um, just coming up with, with issues that really don't need to be an issue. Um, oh, yeah. So is it true, this is something that I've heard recently, that, mm -hmm. um, that sugar is something that will feed, quote unquote, bad bacteria, and that by um, avoiding sugar that you're basically like starving them off. Is that kind of a myth or is there any validity to that? Uh, well, like, you know, since there are no, there's no good or bad bacteria, sugar will feed, uh, any bacteria. Sugar will feed your good bacteria too. Lactobacilli, they, they love to 
munch on some simple sugars. Um, and it's actually one mechanism by which they may help to reduce energy availability um, to the host. So, uh, no, I would say that that is a blatant myth um, that we, you know, I, obviously we don't want to have um, a bunch of uh, processed, refined sugars, not because it does anything magical, except that it makes us want to eat more. There's a, a, that, that really cool um, new study that just came out. I can't remember um, who the author was, but it's been all over Instagram. I shared it too, that, you know, eating processed foods, it's not that it causes, you know, some hormonal changes or something like that, or, or supersedes the laws of physics. It's just that if you're eating a lot of food with refined carbohydrates that are also high in fat, that's hyperpalatable. That will make you want to eat more. Now, certainly the microbiome may actually play a role in the types of food that, um, that you're driven to eat, but we have really no understanding of what that role might be. Um, and, and so it still comes back to controlling your intake of those foods and including them, you know, in moderation in, uh, it, within the number of calories that you need to meet your goals. Yeah, absolutely. I think the study you're referring to was a Kevin Hall study, which yes. was great. That showed, yeah. So um, I think that just goes to show that when we try to demonize one specific food group or macronutrient, um, you know, there's really no, there's no science to back that up and um, you can't ignore the laws of thermodynamics and it always comes back to that. So um, exactly. how about food sensitivities? Because I think this is something that mm. Uh, seems to be more common or maybe we just have more awareness around it but I feel like more people are um, coming up with and, and I'm not sure even if the testing is really appropriate and how that's done I feel like you know oftentimes you find that you're you're coming becoming intolerant to a food that you consume more regularly but that's just because there's more antibodies in your blood when it's being tested so it's not truly a sensitivity issue um, you know mm -hmm. it might just be a testing issue so what are your thoughts on that? Well, actually, those IgG food sensitivity tests are completely invalid. Um, I have posted about this before, and I've unfortunately had this conversation with so many uh, clients and potential clients where they've had one of these tests done, and I I feel a little bit bad saying, oh, yeah, you, you kind of wasted your money on that, um, and, and nine, well, 100% of the time I ask, are those foods that you commonly consume? And they say, yes, those were foods that they ate all the time and really had no idea that it was causing their issues. And the reality is that it was likely not causing their issues because IgG antibodies, those are really just memory antibodies. Um, not every antibody that you produce is going to then lead to uh, the activation of an immune response or an allergic response. The antibody that we actually need to test uh, for an allergic response would be IgE. Um, so you could have that tested. You could also have a skin prick test uh, and look for a localized allergic response to um, a, a potential allergen. There are a couple of other ways that you can test, but the IgG uh, food sensitivity test is not a valid test. It does not actually tell you anything except that you eat these foods often. Uh, the other antibody that's really important um, in the gut specifically is IgA, uh, and that helps to sort of regulate um, bacterial activity and, uh, and, and, you know, potentially pathogenic activity as well. So just, you know, the, we have a, we have a, a slew of antibodies that play a role in the immune response. Um, but IgG is not one that will cause an allergic response. 
So are there any like symptoms or signs that something might be off, things that you see commonly where you would you know, move to either testing or an elimination protocol? And what is your process for kind of working through that with a client? Um, in most cases, people can tolerate, you know, if it's not, if they do have a food allergy, if they have a diagnosed food allergy, that can in some cases be life-threatening. And so certainly, you know, those need to be avoided. If a person has a suspected food sensitivity, say that they're having some regular indigestion, and usually I see this as, you know, gas, bloating, um, incomplete elimination, or just irregular bowel habits, and, you know, those sort of general complaints, um, my first step is always to recommend that they visit a gastroenterologist. Uh, I think it's important, really important to practice, you know, within one scope. And I know some things about some things, but there are also so, you know, plenty of disease states out there that I think I just want to make sure that, um, you know, all my, my I's are dotted and T's are crossed and that that person has seen a gastro and, you know, potentially had a colonoscopy. Um, colorectal cancer is, you know, not something that you will have necessarily symptoms of early on. And yeah, you know, the, the risk of developing that, you know, may be low at a young age, but I think it's still something to get checked out. If not that, that could be an inflammatory bowel disease. There could be so many things going on. So that's my first step. Um, at, second to that, the the general approach that I have is to ask a person, you know, if they're eating um, dairy commonly because lactose intolerance is so common, uh, that could be one really easy uh, thing to limit. In people who have lactose intolerance, they can actually still tolerate, you know, really small amounts of dairy. It's just a matter of, of limiting it. Uh, if that is probably not the case, then the the next step, because it's kind of extreme and a little bit invasive, is that I recommend following low, a low FODMAP protocol for two to three weeks. Um, the uh, There's an app for this too, the Monash Diet app, uh, but it's, it's just... It's uh, and it's kind of funny because like other diets, you know, like mm, whole thirty and whatever, you know, they're 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 just elimination diets. You're really just removing foods that that often cause gastrointestinal distress because they're high in fermentable fibers. I just don't try to put any kind of cool name on it. It's just this is you know a low fodmap approach. You do this for a couple weeks. Hopefully by then um, symptoms improve and in everyone that I've done this with really they've seen improvement as long as they really stick to the plan for a couple weeks. They'll, they'll see and I've seen some really drastic changes. Then after that you start reincorporating foods. The problem with following low FODMAP for like indefinitely, you know, even though you might feel really good is that if you're not having those fermentable fibers, like I mentioned earlier, you're not going to be feeding some of the taxa that we consider to be beneficial. Uh, so it's not considered to be like a lifelong diet and no, you know, restrictive diet should be, but you get to the point where you've introduced back, you know, all of the foods that, that, uh, you enjoy and you want to have in your habitual diet and you really feel out, you know, how many, how much of those foods can you tolerate? Uh, some of them, are, are going to be more problematic than others. Like garlic and onion are two common ones that really cause gastrointestinal distress in a lot of people. 
Um, and then, then things like caffeine, um, caffeine can speed intestinal transit. So that's another thing that might be, you know, worth looking into and possibly cutting back on. But my, my number one priority is always to, you know, try to make that as, as least disruptive as possible, not to demonize any foods and realize that in most cases you can tolerate some level of these foods. It's just finding the level that works for you to, so that you can have a varied diet, but you know, with minimal side effects. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And is it possible that some issues can be related to chronic stress or like over-exercising because you are kind of temporary, temporarily kind of shutting off immune function when you're, you know, doing high intensity training or you are somebody who's just chronically overstressed? And um, is there any kind of gut issues that can um, happen as a result of that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the whole gut brain axis, this is a bi-directional highway, uh, mostly, you know, via the vagus nerve, but also, uh, via neurotransmitters and things that, that the bacteria can produce or cause, um, the intestine to produce. So, um, there is some evidence that perhaps, you know, chronic stress, um, and, and chronic cortisol release, you know, can obviously disrupt circadian rhythms, um, may actually also affect gut motility. So that's a uh, movement of and processing of foodstuffs in the gut. Uh, so, you know, just like if we have an extreme stress response to something, you know, a, a panic attack, we may have nausea, we may have vomiting. So that certainly can play a role. Um, also, there's uh, some pretty interesting, compelling evidence linking um, endotoxemia or leakage of endotoxin, that LPS that I I mentioned earlier, into circulation in athletes who are doing extreme endurance events. And that if we test the blood of these athletes, especially if they've undergone a lot of heat stress, that there's a a greater level of endotoxin um, compared to pre-race conditions. Uh, And they may also have increased intestinal permeability. Um, there's also the, uh, the, uh, impact of mechanical stress. So we're jostling the gut. There's the impact of less oxygen availability because we're shunting blood away from the gut, um, to our working muscles. And there are some bacteria that do really well in a, uh, a low oxygen environment and others that, you know, may not do so well. There are pH changes that occur because of the change in blood flow. And, you know, just like we have a change in taxa along the gut due to pH changes, we can have, you know, perhaps um, acute pH changes. The thing is, we have very, very little data on acute changes um, after exercise. There's there's a, a one that I've seen on, um, you know, just differences in functional uh, activity of the bacteria. So the actual profile, the bacteria themselves didn't change, but their the genes that they were expressing, those changed. So exercise and, uh, you know, exercise as a stressor does have an impact on the gut and can influence, especially, you know, gastric gastric emptying, um, gastric transit, symptoms of, of IBS and things like that, and chronic stress, uh, sleep deprivation, um, those may also play a role. And, and there are correlations um, between dysbiosis and circadian rhythm disruptions in mice. We just really haven't been able to, you know, see that play out as much in humans. Um, and, and, you know, part of that is just that there is a disconnect between the mouse microbiome and the human microbiome. And so uh, that's, that's one, you know, major limitation of trying to extrapolate what we might see in humans um, from mouse or animal data. 
Yeah, I think if you just break it down from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, when there was a perceived stress or a real stress, we didn't want resources going towards our immune function. We wanted to, you know, run from that tiger or fight it off or whatever the case may be. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it seems like the um, gut microbiome is pretty resilient to an acute stressor. Like if we, you know, have a weekend bender or something like that, that we're not really going to cause all that much damage. Is that is that right? That it will kind of repair itself or go back to its normal form if, if, you know, I'm even wording that properly. Yeah, yeah, no, I know what you mean. Um, Well, it really depends on what that biome looked like at baseline. Uh, It looks like a more diverse microbiome is more resilient and more resistant to external stressors, just like an ecosystem is. Um, If we have a lot of species that means we have a lot of, you know, functional um, diversity and functional redundancy as well. Then if we have a few species here and there who are kind of, you know, knocked off or hit really hard, overall it's okay because, you know, we, we the rest of them can kind of pick up the slack. Um, also, bacteria can actually regulate each other's numbers via something called quorum sensing. So they're kind of always taking a census of who's there and how many. And that's really how pathogenicity is controlled because bacteria that are pathogenic aren't going to waste all of their resources trying to mount an attack if there's only like a couple of them and they know that they're not going to be able to overcome the host immune response. So, um, you know, when we're looking at how resilient your gut is, it's probably fine if you are, you know, a a healthy person who's not immunocompromised, has no gastrointestinal disorders, and you eat a, a variable diet. If, on the other hand, you have a very low diversity in the gut, then you are at greater risk of, of a perturbation really causing an extreme response. And this may be part of the reason why um, elderly individuals who have reduced uh, microbial diversity, you know, they're at much greater risk of, of being susceptible to C. diff infection. Um, and, and especially when they go into, you know, an assisted living facility, um, that really seems to cut down on the diversity even more. And so their susceptibility to the infection is just so, so greatly exacerbated. Um, but yeah, in in most cases, like if you're just, you know, having a a day where you eat something unusual, yeah, you may have a little bit of fluctuation in, in some taxa and, and, but overall, you know, is your whole gut health going to be affected? Well, considering that diet may only influence, you know, 20% of the species there, uh, eh, you know, we're not looking at like you have to rebuild your gut or something, um, you know, after you go out drinking and whatnot, or even if you, uh, you know, don't sleep well for a few days. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. Um, speaking of rebuilding the gut, is that something that needs to be done after antibiotics or is that kind of blown out of proportion? Um, I've heard that you have to totally repopulate your gut, get on a probiotic. Uh, what are your thoughts? Um, no, there actually have been really long follow-up studies in humans um, after antibiotic uh, uh perturbation or, or challenge. Uh, once again, this is an area of research that, you know, it's, it's still emerging. There's a lot of, uh, heterogeneity between the, the different study designs. Some of them are not done very well. And, the you know, in, in the studies where we give probiotics, like dosages are all over the place. Um, and it really also depends on, on the antibiotic. You know, if you have a, a serious, 
um, infection in the gut. So you've got like salmonella or C. diff or H. pylori, and then you go on really super strong, broad spectrum antibiotics. That would be considered a significant challenge to the gut. Um, but whether or not you should actually go on probiotics, it really depends on, on what probiotic you're looking at. Um, one of the most effective probiotics that I've seen for, um, you know, usefulness across multiple disease states and one that I actually am kind of, you know, as my end of one, I tried myself, um, was Saccharomyces boulardii, which is actually a, a yeast. It's not even a bacteria. <clears throat> um, but that has been been shown to help um, speed the the natural restoration of the gut microbiome. Um, but yeah, yeah. So you know, and I and and also has you know helped prevent antibiotic associated diarrhea. Um, so that's one you know that perhaps. But in in studies using uh, lactobacillus strains of bacteria, they actually found that that delayed the restoration of the 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 previous microbiome and that the people who were taking that probiotic actually could have been considered still exhibiting dysbiosis um, if you if you define dysbiosis as like low diversity in the gut. And so, you know, that could be a problematic thing. We have to realize that any species of bacteria that we introduce to the gut, that's like, it, that is like increasing numbers of a specific animal in an ecosystem. It's going to have effects on all of the other organisms in that ecosystem. And we don't have the, the research capabilities yet to really determine, you know, all of the effects. But we do know that just like these bacteria, you know, know are are killing pathogenic uh bacteria sure but guess what they're also competing for resources with each other some of them may have mutualistic relationships as well so adding one may cause the growth of another one and that's not always a good thing um so you have to be very careful i think with like making recommendations that way across the board now can we completely um restore the gut with supplements no, it doesn't look like we can. And it looks like, you know, perhaps the best ways that we can do this are either to, A, go back to your previous good habits with a diet that has sufficient fiber um, and, you know, prudent exercise habits and getting good rest. Or B, um, an autologous fecal transplant where you take a fecal transplant from yourself um, before you had to go on antibiotics. But that means that, you know, you'd have to have it stored like before you had uh, the, the infection. Or you can get a fecal transplant from someone else. But there's also the chance that you could be getting a pathogenic bacteria from that person as well. So um, the fecal transplants really have been super, super effective for helping to treat C. diff infections. Uh, but they're not without risk. And so it's not something that is really being used um, widely right now. But I could totally foresee, you know, maybe I should start this company where it's just like freezing, uh, you know, cord blood and stuff. You can like freeze your own healthy poop and then have that as your your fecal transplant later on. If you need investors, I'm in. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that, though, because I think with a lot of times with probiotics, it's almost like we're throwing a dart at a dartboard blindfolded and we don't really know or haven't done the research search or even, you know, if there is enough research to point to the fact that like this strain is going to interact positively with my ecosystem. And again, there's so much individual variance. Um, and I think, you know, it always comes back to like, like you mentioned, the healthy habits. Are we, you know, eating quality foods most of the time, um, you know, exercising, getting adequate sleep, managing stress, and just kind of, you know, falling back on those healthy habits to restore 
if there is something off to, you know, most of us would choose option A that you outlined. So, um, but since you mentioned the fecal transplant, I think it's, you know, there's been some fascinating studies about, uh, I think one that I saw on autism where there was actually some um, symptoms that were cured through um, or improved through fecal transplant. Uh, what do you see, uh, what do you foresee as if you just had to give your best guess as to where, like, where are we going with this evidence? Where, like, where is it going to be in the future? Um, obviously, you know, look into your crystal crystal ball and let me know what your <laughs> what your thoughts are on like curing disease. I mean, you know, I think it was Hippocrates that said all disease starts in the gut, and you know, there's probably some truth to that. Uh, so, where do you think we're going with this? Uh, I think that um, we have to be careful not to get ahead of ourselves because when we become, you know, hyper-focused on what we expect to find or what we think is the mechanism, sometimes we can lose sight of what the actual mechanism is. Um, and so, you know, there have been some really interesting studies on on social behaviors and, and you know, anxiety and autism-like behaviors in rodents, but there have also been plenty of studies that have shown that 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 microbial uh, manipulation uh, or transplant actually has no effect. So when you look at the, uh, across the literature in mice, germ-free mice or mice that have um, no bacteria, they are usually considered to have um, kind of asocial uh, behaviors and, you know, perhaps more anxiety-like behaviors or autistic uh, spectrum behaviors, but that's actually not the case. In some cases, they'll be, act more anxious. In some cases, they'll act less. They may be more or less social. So our rodent studies are are really not um, conclusive, even though like the ones that show a positive benefit are shared so widely. It's sort of like we have a positive publishing bias. We also have kind of a positive sharing bias. And so um, the other thing to consider is that, you know, we don't have really a cause and effect mechanism yet in humans because individuals who may have, there, there's, there are correlations that individuals who have um, depression or anxiety are more likely to have uh, IBS or gastrointestinal issues. Um, individuals on the autism spectrum may have a, a less varied diet due to taste and texture preferences. Um, and likewise, individuals who have, you know, anxiety or depression uh, may not also, you know, may, perhaps they're not, uh, you know, having healthy diet choices and, and, you know, getting exercise and things like that um, because the, you know, the, the mental struggle that they're having is preventing them from having those habits. So there may be correlations, but it could be due to, you know, dietary effects, you know, having an effect on the microbiome or the microbiome, you know, then having an influence and, and it could be sort of a cyclical thing. Um, so I think that that's just, you know, we have to have caution um, with sort of the conclusions that we're making. Because I've even seen people implicating like gluten in causing autism. And I think that, you know, if we jump on that and say, oh, gluten's the bad guy, what are we, are we really missing the actual thing? You know, let's not, you know, be hypervigilant on the wrong thing. Um, but that being said, you know, if we can, if we can identify, you know, lifestyle interventions, I think that's the big thing thing that we really should be focusing on is that, you know, certainly medications are extremely helpful and extremely useful. And what we find is that things like probiotics or whatever other intervention, um, they can be used as, as adjuvant therapies. So they make the therapy, the conventional therapy, 
more effective. I think that's really the most beneficial way we can look at it is not that we're replacing modern medicine. Um, I really think that that's an unfortunate movement. It's giving rise to things like anti-vax and, and, you know, not using medicines and using essential oils. We don't need to replace modern medicine. All we can do is take a more um, whole, whole ecosystem view of it and help make those modern advances even more effective or, you know, help to reduce symptoms and improve quality of life using these things or even looking at it from a preventative standpoint that, hey, now we know the type of lifestyle habits you should have to prevent these diseases. And we kind of do know that for a lot of them, you know, type 2 diabetes and, and obesity and things like that. We know how to prevent a lot of these. For the things that are not preventable, like genetic diseases, um, we can look at how we can make those uh, treatments more effective and, and less invasive. I completely agree. And I love that take, especially from a practitioner who's able to say, we don't have enough research to say this with absolute certainty. I have so much respect for that. And it's why I've enjoyed your content so much and wanted to get you on the show. Um, so the last question that I have before I let you go is tomorrow morning, I'm going to have a coffee. I'm going to pour some Splenda in it. <laughs> Am I doing damage to my gut? I think I know the answer, but can you give us the lowdown on artificial sweeteners? Oh yeah, um, I actually wrote about this in the um, in the gut health section of the RP Diet Book because it comes up so so often. Um, now I have, uh, you know, once again, I always will will. Uh, want to give like the the preview of whatever I'm going to say saying you know of course the studies in rodents can't always be extrapolated to studies in humans and and really this is really one of the best cases um a lot of the dosages used in rodent studies you know early on were just super physiological like there was no way that a human was going to be able to eat the equivalent dose of what we were giving rodents when we saw that these things were causing things like cancer in some in limited human studies, there really have been limited um, interventions where we've given uh, you know an artificial sweetener and then looked at the effects of of the gut or um, on metabolism. From those studies, we can gather a couple things. One, you still have to be to see an effect. In most cases, you still have to be having the acceptable daily intake, which is a lot, um, and it varies by by sweetener that you choose. Um, the two that seem to have the most effect would be sucralose and saccharin, and most being relative because it's still a very minor effect. It looks like perhaps one in 10 people um, will have a, a, a response um, of a change in insulin sensitivity if they're eating a lot of these artificial sweeteners. And perhaps 30% of people, based on the number of people that were affected in the studies, um, see some changes to the microbial taxa. So not even everyone actually saw any changes to the microbial taxa uh, that were measured, you know, after taking in um, saccharin. So, uh, you know, thinking of, of how that weighs against the, the benefit of replacing uh, a nutritive sweetener, you know, if this is helping you control your caloric intake and control your body weight and adhere to an overall nutritious diet, that benefit is so much greater than any potential risk of like, you know, maybe a 10 to 30% chance that you may see some change, but we don't even really have, you know, the people that did see changes to their microbial taxa didn't, didn't mean anything in terms of, you know, metabolic function and things like that. 
And we know that, uh, you know, even if you do have, you know, minor derivations and things like insulin sensitivity um, transiently, that that's not going to preclude you from being able to, you know, lose weight and things like that. So artificial sweeteners are not going to, you know, based on the evidence thus far, not going to have a, a really strong effect on the biome. Um, if you want to go for one that probably isn't doing anything all based on what we've seen, aspartame would be the one that really doesn't seem to do much of anything, um, you know, perhaps because it's just like a made of, made of amino acids and bacteria don't really like to do so much with that. Um, but, you know, most of it just is just going to be excreted and really not something to worry about to any great extent. All right. Perfect. So I'm going to enjoy that stevia tomorrow and or Splenda. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes I go Splenda, stevia, yeah. but Splenda is usually. You know, stevia, oh, stevia actually has the lowest ADI of those sweeteners. Yeah. So I, yeah. sometimes I'll, I'll throw some stevia in there, but most of the time it's a Splenda in my coffee. And yeah. again, for practical application, keep it in moderation and yeah. you're you know, pretty much fine. Um, yep. So I, I appreciate you coming on and dropping serious knowledge. I'm probably going to have to go back and listen a couple of times just to pick up on everything that you covered. Um, can you just uh, tell everybody where they can find you and learn more about what you have going on? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I am on Instagram and Facebook as Vitamin PhD. Um, my website has a whole list of podcasts, um, my upcoming seminars, and then, you know, little giveaways that I do for, for like uh, content and, and discount codes for RP, RP Plus, and Stronger Experts. Um, that's vitaminphdnutrition.com. I also have a blog that I don't update often enough, but um, that's more about like lifestyle change if they want to read about that. And they can also find me on renaissanceperiodization.com um, to you know look at my bio and uh, check out all of the coaching options. And um, yeah, hit me up on Instagram. Like I love, I love to to hear from people and answer questions. Someone today told me that the, the amount of free information that I give away is, is kind of crazy, but um, I really like that. I just, I, I love to be able to connect with people. Yeah. And vitamin PhD is such a great handle. And I can say that your content is entertaining and educational and you know, you're not afraid to call out somebody on their bullshit when they're posting false information. And I think that we need more of that. And uh, yeah, so I just really appreciate your time. Um, we might have to do a round two. So um, uh, I know you're very busy, but uh, we'll we'll be in touch, and I appreciate it. Yeah, definitely.